Before we begin this week's episode, I want to take a moment to thank everyone who has listened up to this point. As a new podcaster, it is exciting for me to see downloads continue to come in for each episode. If you have enjoyed what you have heard so far, it would mean the world to me. If you would, one, recommend this show to a friend. The best advertising for a podcast is word of mouth. And two, if you would take a moment out of your busy day to visit Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream from and give the show a five-star rating and write a review. This helps other people find it. And as always, if you would like to interact with the show directly, you can find it on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or the show's website, www.ghostsofarlingtonpodcast.com. Finally, I spent the last two weeks in an online training course I wasn't particularly looking forward to, and I want to give a huge shout out to the great instructors and everyone in class, especially Kurt and Raj, who kept me going with our sometimes irreverent three-way text chain. I don't have time to thank everyone by name, but you all know who you are, and I want to wish you the best of luck with the next phase. With all that out of the way... Welcome, and thank you for joining me for Ghosts of Arlington, Episode 4, Custis Lee Gives Up Arlington. Last week, we covered how Custis Lee, the eldest son of General Robert E. and Mary Custis Lee, successfully regained the legal ownership of Arlington Plantation after his parents' death. I feel that I should start with an apology up front. This week's episode is going to be a little shorter than usual, but I want to wrap up the cemetery from the 19th century point of view before jumping ahead to the 20th century. Now that Custis had his property back, the federal government had a few options going forward. It could abandon Fort Whipple, evict the freedmen, relocate 20,000 graves and vacate the property, or it could buy the estate back, assuming Custis was willing to sell. He was absolutely willing to sell. Regaining Arlington had been a matter of principle, but Custis, who had once again followed in his father's footsteps, this time as president of the soon-to-be-renamed University of Washington and Lee, had no intention of moving back to Arlington. The two sides agreed on a price of $150,000, about $3.5 million today, and Congress quickly appropriated funds for the purchase. Lee officially transferred ownership of the property to the government of the United States of America on April 25, 1883, an act that placed the federal claim to Arlington beyond dispute. Ironically, the man who formally accepted the title to the property was Secretary of War Robert Todd Lincoln, son of the American president so often bedeviled by Custis Lee's father. If the sons of such enemies could bury their differences at Arlington, there might be hope for national healing yet. By the time all questions of ownership had been settled, 
Fort Whipple had been renamed Fort Myer, and with the arrival of Major General Philip Sheridan in 1887, Myer became the nation's premier cavalry post. Sheridan, the newly appointed commander of the army, expanded the stables, moved 1,500 horses to the site, and began using them for funerals, parades, and other ceremonies around the capital. The neighboring cemetery, originally allocated 200 acres, continued to grow as Civil War veterans continued to age and pass on to history. Arlington started as the final stop for destitute and unknown soldiers, but quickly became the place for a veteran to be buried. Distinguished Union generals, including Philip Kearney, Abner Doubleday, and William Rosecrans, competed for prominent burial space around the Lee Mansion. 200 acres soon proved insufficient, and a planned expansion doomed the Freedmen's Village. This ragged community of former slaves was still clinging to the bottomlands of the estate two decades after the invitation to relocate to the property originally came. But it was never meant to be more than a temporary stop on the road to self-sufficiency. Without presenting any evidence, the army claimed that the residents of the village had been illegally entering the cemetery after dark for the purpose of obtaining firewood and ordered those still living in the village to vacate their holdings within 90 days. Although it took more time for the final occupants of the Freedmen's Village to depart, depart they did. The only evidence that remains of their presence today are the headstones of their friends and family who were left behind. As the dawn of the 20th century approached, the cemetery expanded to 400 acres, while General Meggs watched with pride as his cemetery grew from a pauper's field to a field of honor. Meggs incorporated Arlington into his family plan. After his wife passed away and was buried near the gate leading to Fort Myer, he relocated several late family members, including his son, Lieutenant John Rogers Meggs, himself a Civil War casualty. By the end of the 1880s, the Meigs clan far outnumbered any Lees remaining on the estate. Back in episode 2, I mentioned that General Meigs openly despised General Lee and all the other rebels who he viewed as nothing more or less than traitors. With this enmity, he did all he could to make a postbellum Arlington uninhabitable for the Lee family. This hatred grew even more during the final autumn of the war. Though he was inexperienced and only 22 years of age, General Philip Sheraton had appointed Lieutenant John Meigs as the chief engineer of the Army of the Shenandoah because the young man knew all the important roads and streams west of the Blue Ridge Mountains and, like his father, was a talented mapmaker. On October 3, 1864, during a nighttime scouting mission, John and two aides were returning to camp when they came upon three men. It was raining and the men were wearing coats that obscured their dress. John misidentified these men as Union colleagues, when in fact, they were Confederate scouts. There are varying accounts of what happened next. Sheridan wrote that the young lieutenant was killed in an ambush by Confederate guerrillas after he refused to comply with the men's demands that he and his companions surrender. A man, later claiming to have been one of the rebels on the scene, said that Meggs pulled a gun and fired on them. Either way, the result of the confrontation was the same. John was dead. 
found on his back with a bullet wound in his head, another in his heart, and a pistol nearby. When General Meggs heard the circumstances of his son's death, he concluded that John had been murdered and had not died in a fair fight. He wrote in a pocket diary that his noble and precious boy was a martyr to the cause of liberty. President Lincoln and Secretary of War Edwin Stanton were among the many dignitaries who mourned with General Meggs at his son's funeral in Georgetown. When word reached Meggs that Lee had surrendered the following April, he fumed that, quote, the rebels are all murderers of my son and the sons of hundreds of thousands. Justice seems not satisfied if they escape judicial trial and execution by the government which they have betrayed. End quote. Meggs never truly moved on after the death of his son. His resentment over the defection of former friends and colleagues continued to grow after the war. He offered a $1,000 reward for information about his son's killers, fixing his obsession on several guerrillas. The man who Meggs blamed most was Colonel John Mosby, known as the Great Ghost, who commanded the irregular Confederate cavalry around the Blue Ridge Mountains. He thought of the killers as infamous villains who had committed murder on a country road. For his part, Mosby disputed any notion of murder and said John Meggs had died in a fair fight at a hard time. Quote, when they came to the Shenandoah Valley to win glory in the Northern Army, they could not have expected to engage in the pastime of killing us without running the risk of getting killed themselves. They took their chances. We did the same. End quote. After the war, when Meggs transferred John's body to Arlington, he commissioned a poignant sculpture depicting his son's body as it had been found, sprawled out on the ground, and placed it atop the young man's grave marker. Photos of this sculpture can be found on the podcast's website. General Meggs will be the subject of next week's episode, so I don't want to say much more at this time. But I will finish today noting that when Montgomery Meggs died, the old order shifted. Lee and Grant were long gone. So was General John A. Logan, the father of Memorial Day. Gone, too, were the generals associated with Manassas, Chancellorsville, Sharpsburg, and Gettysburg. Hood, Hooker, Jackson, McClellan, Sheridan, Burnside, and Meade. Even the durable William T. Sherman passed, barely a year before Meigs. One of Sherman's pallbearers, Confederate General Joseph E. Johnston, at 84 years old, stood bareheaded on a cold winter's day during Sherman's funeral service. When asked why, Johnston replied that if Sherman were in his place and Johnston were being lowered into the ground, Sherman would not put his hat on. Johnston caught a cold and died shortly thereafter. Such displays of magnanimity helped soften hard feelings between North and South, but it would take a new war to fully heal the scars from the old one a war we will get to once we properly lay General Meggs to rest. Remember, if you are interested in seeing photos of Lieutenant John Meggs or any of the other ghosts of Arlington we have talked about so far, visit the show's website at www.ghostsofarlingtonpodcast.com. And as always, fear not death, for the sooner we die, the longer we shall be immortal.